We're looking at the third of these seven letters, the letter to the church of Pergamos. A little bit about Pergamos. Pergamos was the political capital of Asia Minor, which is where all these churches were. Uh, in fact, the ancient city of Pergamos is still there today. It's called Bergama. But it was the political capital of this time. It had a huge library, huge library of the ancient world. In fact, the city of Pergamos was so connected with the idea of writing and literature that the word parchment actually comes from the word Pergamos. It was an extremely religious city. Temples to the, to the god Dionysus, temple to the goddess Athena, temple to uh, the god Zeus. In fact, there was in the city of Pergamos a huge altar, the altar of Zeus. This started to be excavated in 1878, and now it is in the Pergamos Museum in Berlin, Germany. Now it's referred to as the altar of Pergamos, but it used to be referred to as the altar of Zeus. This thing is about 100 feet wide. It's about 100 feet deep. Absolutely massive. Many people think when in just a few moments, when, when Jesus says to this church, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, many people believe it was a direct reference to this, that this is what he was talking about when he talks about the throne of Satan being in the city of Pergamos. The most famous deity that the city of Pergamos was associated with was a god named Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. And in fact, what we use today for the medical community symbol is actually the rod of Asclepius. So if you see this picture of the World Health Organization, that is the rod of Asclepius. In the city of Pergamus, they had in the temple of Asclepius essentially a medical school but also what was the equivalent of an ancient spa where you could go to, and people from all around the Mediterranean would travel to the Temple of Asclepius to be invigorated by the thermal waters. But here's what you would do. You would go into the Temple of Asclepius, and you would spend the night in the Temple of Asclepius. And if you had some kind of ailment, what the priests of Asclepius would do is they would release into the temple snakes while you were sleeping. Now, these were non-venomous snakes, but what it was believed is that if one of these snakes touched you, you would be healed. The other thing is about Asclepius, they had given him a title. When we think of Jesus Christ, right? Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. It means anointed one. They had given Asclepius a name, Asclepios Soter, which means Asclepios Savior. They believed that Asclepios was a savior that he could save you from physical ailments. So again, when we read here tonight, when Jesus says to the church in Pergamos, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, there was a lot of paganism in this city. Now, the word Pergamos actually means objectionable marriage. If you were with us for our overview of the seven churches, we talked about they're the compromising church. If there was anything that really defined the, the attitude or the atmosphere of the church in Pergamos, it was compromise. Jesus begins, verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the only way Jesus introduces himself to this church. Down in verse 16, Jesus is going to tell this church that they need to repent, or else he tells them 
He's going to come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. The book of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I see here a picture of Jesus with the word of God saying to a church who was in danger of compromise, I'm the one who's going to bring the word. Because it's the word of God that is going to be what keeps us on course and keeps us from compromising. So it's interesting to this church who was compromising, this church who had this objectionable marriage, because that's what Pergamus means. Per means objectionable. You think about perjury or perversion, it means objectionable. And then we think about gamos, that refers to marriage. So monogamous or polygamous, pergamos, objectionable marriage to this church that was in danger of compromise, Jesus says to them, I'm the one that's going to bring the word. He says, these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We don't know a lot about Antipas. What we do know is that he was called by Jesus, my faithful martyr. Why that's interesting to me is because back in chapter 1 in verse 5, we read Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. The phrase, the faithful witness, said of Jesus in chapter 1 verse 5, is the same phrase said of Antipas by Jesus here in Revelation chapter 2. How would you like to have Jesus take away he was described and use it to describe you. That's what we know about this guy. We also know this guy did not deny the faith. His name literally means against all. This guy was willing to stand for what was right. In a place, look, this does not sound like a nice place to live, right? Where Satan dwells, right? Where Satan's throne is. But, but here's the thing. Jesus says, I know that's where you are. He says, I know your works and where you dwell. Here's why I think that's important. Because a lot of times, I think we point to our circumstances and we use it as an excuse for not being faithful. You know, we want to say, well, Lord, my marriage. Kevin, if you knew where I work, if you knew my boss, if you knew my current situation, the reality is, Our circumstance and our situation doesn't become a reason for us to not be obedient. It doesn't become a reason for us to not be faithful. Antipas rises off the pages tonight, living in a place where Satan dwelled, where Satan's throne was. I don't think Jesus uses those words lightly. But Jesus is able to say to him, I know, I know, I know where you live. I get it. I see it. But that's important because in just a few moments, he's going to say to this church, but I do have some things that I need to knock you on. And that's important for us to see because what Jesus doesn't say to them is, well, I know where you live. And so, you know what? I'll let it slide this time. I'll let the compromising slide. No, he doesn't. He says, I know where you live. However, I still need to call you out on this. Truth is truth. 
Holiness is holiness. Righteousness is righteousness. Jesus says, I get it. I know where, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He says, and you hold fast to my name and didn't deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you. Now, remember to the church in Ephesus at the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus says, I have this against you. To this church tonight, he says, I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, verse 15, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Three basic things that the church of Pergamos was in danger of compromising over. One was what he mentions in verse 15 was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The other was essentially idolatry. The other was sexual immorality. Let's take the first one, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That's a compound word, Nicolaos. Nico means to conquer. Laos means people. So we think of lay people in the church or the laity, the clergy and the laity. Same word, Nicolaitan. Okay, so the Nicolaitans was a doctrine of conquering the people. Many people see here a reference to a hierarchical priesthood. But what about just the idea of, of spiritual bullying? Remember when John writes his third little epistle to the church? He mentions in verse 9 of 3 John chapter 1, he says, I wrote to you, but he mentions this guy by the name of Diotrephes. He says, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among you. And then he talks about how when he gets there, he's going to have to stop his prating mouth because this guy loved to kind of put people out of the church. Diotrephes, for all intents and purposes, was just kind of a spiritual bully. That's kind of the, the heart behind the Nicolaitans that you see there in verse 15. Now, the other things that we see talked about in verse 14, you have idolatry and you have sexual immorality. You know, idolatry, again, it's one of those things that, okay, you know, not many of us are pulling out a statue at home and burning incense to it. So we think, well, okay, I'm kind of over that one. I'm not really struggling with idolatry. Until you get to passages like in Colossians where it says that covetousness is idolatry. In other words, to live a life where you're always just wanting more and more and more and you're never satisfied, got to have a bigger house, got to have a bigger boat, right? Got to go on a bigger vacation, got to have this, got to have that. That's idolatry. And the book of Hebrews tells us why. Jesus himself says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so be content. He says, don't let your behavior be with covetousness. Your conduct, he says, be with covetousness. Okay, all of a sudden, idolatry now takes on an entirely different meaning. Here's the big one, though. Sexual immorality. Oh, I could talk about this for weeks. I could make a whole series on the idea, on the idea of sexual immorality. Do we see in sexual immorality? I mean, is there a case to say that wrapped up in this, it is homosexuality? 
Absolutely. Absolutely there is. But look, there is a part of me that completely understands why the homosexual community is so angry at the church. And I'll tell you why. We have demonized homosexuals all the while we have couples in our church who are not married and they're sleeping together and we don't say a word about it. If you take Jesus' words for what they say, there's two reasons that are allowable in Scripture for why someone is permitted to get a divorce. Jesus says if you get divorced for any reasons other than these and you go out and get married, you're committing adultery. Not only that, but you're causing the person who married you to commit adultery and the person you were married to because you got divorced without reason, you're causing them to commit adultery. There's very few things in Scripture that God says he hates. One of them's divorce. And the divorce rate is higher in the Christian community than the non-Christian community. That's the kind of compromise that Jesus is talking about here. Do I think that we should... Take a stand against homosexuality? Absolutely. But do I also think we should uphold biblical divorce? Absolutely. Do I think that we should go to people who are not married, who are, who are sleeping together, and people in the church know it and say something? Yes, I do. Because if not, we're compromising. Now, here's what I want to do. I know I'm taking kind of a long time to get through one verse. But I feel like I need to back up a little bit and talk about what he says here when he says how they held to the doctrine of Balaam. This is mentioned more than once in the New Testament. The idea of the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam, in Numbers chapter 22 through 24, and then he's referenced very briefly over in uh, Numbers chapter 31. Balaam was a prophet who was hired by a Moabite king named Balak. He looks out and he sees all these Israelites. He's like, we've got to figure out a way to deal with the Israelites. So he hires this prophet named Balaam to stand up on a mountain and curse them. Okay, so Balaam goes up onto this mountain and he goes to curse the children of Israel. And when he opens his mouth, what comes out instead is a blessing. Because God won't let him curse his people. He tries this four times. So he finally just goes to Balak and he's like, look, he, God is not going to let me curse the children of Israel. He said, but I'll tell you what you do. Bring your women over here and seduce the men and cause the men to intermarry with your people. And he says, after a while, their hearts will turn away from following their God because they'll get caught up in idolatry of worshiping your gods. And that's exactly what happens. Most of the time in the New Testament, when you see this reference to Balaam, it's a reference to the idea of false teaching. I mean, do you notice here where he says in verse 14, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. And then he also says in verse 15, you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. In both of these situations, these things were traced back to bad teaching. Now, it's also important to notice as well where, where Jesus says this, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. He says in verse 15, you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It wasn't the whole church. It was just some people in the church. And that is what was causing the problems. 
of the church in Pergamos. It was this mentality of let people come in and believe what they want, live the way they want. Look what Jesus tells this church in verse 16. He says, repent. He says, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. You have there those who hold the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I would say the problem wasn't as much the people who were holding to the false doctrine. The problem was really the people who were letting them do it and not saying anything. Jesus says, repent. Change. Change your direction, he says. Or else I will come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent or else. Ugh. When I see this, it's just like, you know, repent or else. I mean, we hear the phrase or else and we get, <laughs> we get our feathers ruffled. I can't believe. Is he, are you threatening me? You know, I mean, Jesus is saying, look, you need to do this or else. If you do not do this, I'm going to come and I'm going to strike against you with the sword of my mouth. This reminds me of a story. Okay, remember the whole thing I told you a minute ago about Balaam and Balak? Balaam was saying, hey, you know, I can't curse them. So what you do is you bring their women in and you have them seduce the men and then they'll buy into your idol, idols and all this kinds of stuff. Well, guess what? That happened. Okay, and in Numbers chapter 25, there's this occasion when Moses is there and it's happening, right? All these children of Israel, they're, 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 they're committing harlotry with the Midianite woman. And Moses is like, you, you guys need to go through the camp and you need to find out whoever's doing this and you just need to kill them. So here's what happens. There's this one young man by the name of Phineas and he's sitting there and while Moses is talking, you know, I mean, look, we, this happens in the church nowadays. We say, hey guys, we need to do this. And then two weeks later, somebody like does the exact thing we said we shouldn't do, you know? So it happened to Moses too. Moses is like, hey, we shouldn't be committing harlotry. Go find people that are committing har harlotry and kill them. And while he's talking, an Israelite guy comes running into the camp, right? He's got a Budweiser hanging out of his hand. He's like, hey, guys, look who I found. And they start having sex right there in front of the entire congregation. Yeah, I know. We think, oh, how could they? Well, wait till you hear what happened. There's a young guy there by the name of Phineas who sees it. You know what he does? He stands up and he takes a javelin and he goes after the man and woman and he runs them through. He goes through the guy and through the woman and pins them to the ground. They got the point, right? But here's the thing. We hear that and we go, okay. For a minute there, I thought the guy with the Budweiser and the girl was doing something wrong. But now you're telling me a guy killed them with a javelin? That's a bit harsh. I'm not so sure that was the loving thing to do. You know what God says? God speaks and he says, Phineas did the right thing. In fact, God says of Phineas, so righteous was he that he gets to inherit the priesthood. Now, we hear that and we go, oh, okay, we get to inherit the priesthood? Dude, it's because we don't have a very high respect for what it meant to inherit the priesthood. And you know why God says it? 
He says, because he was zealous. He was zealous. He gets to inherit the priesthood. And it became a testimony to him throughout all generations because he did the right thing. Even though how in the moment it seemed like the harsh thing, it was the right thing. And it's like any more what, what we love to fall back on. We would rather let people do the wrong thing than have someone do the right thing, but possibly have them risk doing the right thing, but saying it in an unloving way. That's, that's what I hear, and you guys know this. I'm not telling you something you don't already know. How many times have you known there was a situation over here, and finally somebody says something about it, but what people say is not, praise God, somebody finally said something. They say, oh, I can't believe he said that. So what you're saying is we would rather just let the person with the Budweiser commit sex in front of the entire congregation. Oh, no, 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 no. I think there was probably a more loving way to, to actually run the javelin through the couple. I'm not sure that, like, the angle that he did it was, you know, he probably, I, I don't know. God said he did the right thing. Huh. Because he was zealous. Zeal, zeal, zealous. It means to be burning hot. I've heard this word before. Wait a minute. I'm remembering an occasion how when they turned the temple into a trading place and there were tables with T-shirts and coffee bars, and all kinds of sales going on. And Jesus strolled in one day, and he was like, what are you? Are you huh? And he made a whip with his hands. And he went through, and he started kicking over the tables and grabbing people out of the ear and driving them out. Look, how do you whip someone out of a temple in a way that looks loving? Seriously. Oh, praise God. Oh, praise the Lord. I'm sure people saw Jesus do this and were like, wow, that guy's a maniac. You know what he said? Zeal for your house has eaten me up. You know what the temple is in the New Testament? Yes, it's our bodies. Paul says that. But in another place, Paul says it's this. It's the gathering of the saints. Do we feel about the gathering of the saints that we will not let something come in that threatens the holiness of this, the sanctity of this? Or have we just become the first church of accommodation? Come here because you can do whatever you want and praise the Lord. Paul said, put that guy out of the church in 1 Corinthians, and we hear that and we think, no, that can't possibly be right. But in his second letter, Paul wrote to them and he said, you did it. And he says, you know why? He says, because you were made sorrowful in a godly manner. Because godly sorrow produces what? Repentance. And what does Jesus tell this church? Repent. You know what? When my kids do something wrong, I want them to feel sorry for it. I don't want to humiliate them for it. I don't think Jesus is humiliating the church, but he is telling the church, repent. I don't think Paul was trying to humiliate the guy who was committing incest. He was taking a stand and saying, the church is holier than that. 
This is something. So don't let that go on. And he says, they listened and they were made sorry in a godly manner. And that led to repentance. And here's what happened. The guy went away and changed his life and was brought back in. And I wonder if we wouldn't see so much go on in the church nowadays if more of us would understand it's okay to make someone sorry in a godly manner. Because godly sorrow leads to repentance. But when I don't say anything and I just accommodate and tolerate, they never feel convicted, so they never stop. And before you know it, Church is no longer a place of holiness. The church is no longer a place of truth and conviction. It's just a club. Jesus says to this church, repent. Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He was in here, verse 17. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now, we know Jesus is the true bread from heaven. I think Jesus here is just talking about how he's going to give them himself for all intents and purposes. He also says, and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Again, that's that's one of those things that we just kind of go, okay, a white stone. That sounds cool. Now, look, I want to tell you some of the things about the white stone. Here's what a white stone represented in this culture. It was a ticket to a banquet. It was also a, a, like you had been counted. Like if a census had been performed, they would give you a white stone. It also meant you had been acquitted in a court of law. So if you were in a court of law and you were pronounced guilty, they would give you a black stone That's where the phrase blackballing comes from. Or if you were innocent, they would give you a white stone. Here's what Adam Clark writes. Others suppose there is an allusion here to conquerors and public games who were not only conducted with great pomp into the city to which they belonged, but had a white stone given to them with their name inscribed on it, a badge which entitled them, check this out, for their whole lives to be maintained at the public expense. So for all intents and purposes, the conquerors in the public games would come back into the city. There'd be a big celebration. They'd be given a white stone with their name on it. And what that meant was for the rest of your life, you would live at the public expense. Okay, so imagine if Jesus said in this letter to the church tonight, I will give you a credit card with an inexhaustible line of credit. We'd know what that meant, right? We'd get it. That's kind of some of the imagery Jesus is drawing upon here. I see in it just a wonderful reference to the intimacy that exists between us and the Lord. He says, I'm going to give him a stone and on it written a name which no one knows except him who receives it. You know, naming is really something that we see in the scriptures. We think about Abram. When God got a hold of him, he changed his name to Abraham. Simon, when Jesus got a hold of him, he changed his name to Peter. Saul, when Jesus got a hold of him, he changed his name to Paul. So the idea of renaming shouldn't be that foreign to us. It denotes authority. It denotes possession. It denotes intimacy. You know, we have a, we have, 
a nickname for all of our kids. Mandy Gale is Moo. Kaysen is Dude. And Avin is Boogery Boy. I remember why Avin's name got started. When he was a little kid, he just had boogers coming out of his nose all the time. And I, I have a song that goes with each of those nicknames. I won't sing the song for you. But I, Avin is Boogery Boy. You'll hear me refer to him. like You'll hear me yell down the halls of the church, Moo! You'll hear me yell, Boogie! That, my kids know their name, but it's a name that they only know. Now, of course, you know it, right? I remember the church we used to go to in Georgia. Somebody called Mandy Gale Moo, and she looked at him like, why are you calling me that name? That is a name that my mom and dad call me. I love the thought that when we get to heaven, I mean, think about how many Kevins there may be in heaven. How many Kevins have there been down throughout the ages? 15 million? 20 million? So if we're in heaven and Jesus wants to get my attention and he says, hey, Kevin, and 15 million people turn their heads, right? But if he gives me a name that nobody knows except me, then when he goes, hey, Moo, that's me, right? Isn't that cool to think that God has got a pet name for you? A name that just he knows and just you are going to know? I just think it's so cool. What a great letter.